Space Cave. Let's get into part two with Caitlin Gill. Uh, this was done in the world of Zoom with a little bit of a shabby internet connection at the end, but we were ahead of the game and recorded each of our ends, and so I think it matches up okay. However, it still makes the conversation a little stilted when you're listening, and even though the audio on their end might be smooth, you're hearing kind of, and then I went up, and that's where I it that kind of thing. And then you have to go, uh-huh, I think I know what they were talking about. Yeah, great point. You pick up the conversation thinking, when we thread this together, no one will be any the wiser. I have to assume toward the end you're going to recognize that, that the the rhythm of it gets off a little bit. So anyway, I hope it's not a huge deal. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. Uh, there is a Patreon. You know that. Patreon.com slash Space Cave. All right, let's get to part two with the hilarious... Caitlin Gill. No, I'd had weed before we started and couldn't articulate a basic life philosophy about what humor is, so I think I'm okay. I'm getting a little closer to actually finishing sentences on purpose. I think finishing sentences can be overrated. I I like when you're being hard on yourself that you weren't articulating something because potentially it was marijuana-related, but I, I don't know. I think that sometimes we just don't have the thoughts or sometimes we in our head, it exists in this very concise version, very pithy. And you start saying it and you're like, oh, man, I haven't given this. But, enough. And then, yeah, why what it is that in this short distance, so much can change. We're like, but up here it was fine. It yeah. was ready to go. Why? What's happening with the exit? Why at the at the yeah. off ramp? Are we failing? Yeah, I but think I was that I to. Sorry. Sorry. Nope. Go ahead. Just mushing two ideas together that uh, it's all from radio lab, basically. That like the nature of laughter is like if the if the brain is presented with uh, two ideas that both appear true, um, it needs resolution. Like the it and a joke is essentially always that the it waits till the last minute to provide relief for tension, um, mm -hmm. and it is really satisfying. Humans love that over and over again because we're tickling this little, like, part of the brain that is excited by the, the tension and then so pleased by the release. Yeah. Um, same reason we like horror movies because we're excited by the tension and then pleased by the release. It's the same little triggery brain part, but it's funny to think of laughter or humor that way. Um, yeah. That it's a more analytical perspective, I suppose. And the joke I always use as an example is, take my wife, please. Where, like, it's such an efficient joke, four words, that really demonstrates, like, take my wife, a sentence that would imply you're about to say something sweet about a caring person that you care about, and then immediately followed by please, which changes the direction <laughs> entirely, presenting a new definition. Yeah. And the brain goes, ha, ha, ha. That weird need for, 
which is strange that in your life when that happens, meaning the misdirection, the change of pace, the flip, the something, you know, um, that you couldn't really see coming. Mm-hmm. I, I always, I don't Last know why. Jokes is what I call them. The ones you always walk right into, even though they were right there. Mm-hmm. I feel like Blaine Kapatch is the king of those. Yeah. King of so many short, efficient, brilliantly written jokes. But like all the jokes I'm trying to think of to make this example that my brain is hiding from me are, would all be written by Blaine Kapatch. Yeah. And he'd have 50 versions and tags onto them where. Yes. You, like the first time he says one, you're like, oh, that's fun. And then by the 10th, you're like, this guy spent like a day really pushing his brain to mine uh, that out of there. And, and in a way that is so different than everyone else could. You know, I love yes. that. Oh, man. Yeah. He's relentless. It's just never stopped with Blaine. Yeah. It's, it's so many years of writing so many jokes. It's so many jokes. <laughs> Probably also someone that has a unique look on entertainment and comedy and... There was a guy I middled for in Louisiana, and um, he had been in Amsterdam and gotten really tweaked out on drugs to the point where he had to have a friend summoned to come get him, like, weighing 100 pounds and bring him home. And But he had been on a sitcom, and so he could kind of headline comedy clubs. And he dressed mm-hmm. like a sushi chef that's how he'd refer to himself but his jokes were just very uh roadsy and but hanging out like outside of the shows he was very interested in life and interesting experiences we the there was this bar owner next door 23 owned this bar it it catered to like lsu fans it was always packed he was just rolling in money as such a youngster (laughs) So he took us across the street. That always ends well. That, that, that trajectory is usually yeah. great. 23 he, tons of booze, lots of money. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. definitely didn't get into cocaine. That's for sure. No way. <laughs> what? I don't what? know. I would be guessing, but I'd be stunned. Southern if his... Coast Bar for college sports wasn't into, yeah. Well, how would that, I don't how see would that road? I, don't, I think he just ended up uh, living a quiet life and uh, he just investing well. Yeah. But he took us across the street and showed us this space that he was going to turn into this gigantic party venue and this comedian was like you know if you need someone to come and work it let me know and i was like you just headline the club which to me strip malls open mics being in it you're doing you're doing the thing man you just headlined a club your name was on the marquee and he was just like oh i could see that being an interesting period of time that would be such an interesting story i come here and i work as this bartender or chef or whatever in this party venue i could see that turning into something i thought maybe he's being reincarnated a bunch of times and it's just kind of sick of all the human experiences and trying are you a vampire, sir <laughs> sir are you a vampire have you been walking among us for many many days is that why you do the careers of the night the bartending and the comedy <laughs> i just think that he maybe you and i are new at it and the feeling of needing to stick it through or needing to see like this linear kind of i wanted my life to go sort of this way it has to have it has to resolve there it certainly can't take all these detours well i mean I, isn't it all detours how the hell did i start stand up comedy at 27 yeah i you know it i have been so certain about what i wanted to do with my life a few times you know, if you feel like you know what you want, it stays that way until you feel like you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, so I make these T-shirts and I have my own, but I also make T-shirts for comedians um, because I want to stay engaged and involved with people 
Um, and it's like not easy. It's a long, slow start. I've been working really hard to get this like happening for people, but like, yeah, in the end, however, I don't know what happens next for me with comedy, but I'm not going anywhere. And I still want all the relationships since those were the measure of my success anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly was not the bag and i do have an imdb page but she's lean so you know it's <laughs> it's like it's uh been really rewarding to start something where it's not about what i got but what i have to help to give i've produced shows but i've certainly like used the time more people spent producing show i always produce a show but you, you know you do everybody's show everybody's making effort for you to have stage time or get paid to sell the tickets, to get the posters, to do all the stuff. And, you know, it, merch is one of those gaps for a lot of comedians. It's really hard to fill. And it, it, I just, it's been really rewarding to try to find a way to step in and ask how I can help instead of try to impress until I get something. Yeah. Try to win. Try to get, some, you know, if I walk in with the approach that I'm trying to help solve a problem... I just feel like I'm, you know, more likely to be a better presence than if I'm there to try to get something out of the situation. And I spent a lot of years trying to get something out of comedy. And it's, I did in a lot of ways, but not what I expected. And I think the explicit mission of trying to help people out feels good. So I'll stick with it. I like it. Yeah. And you've mentioned your partner eight and a half years a couple times in that. Mm -hmm. The sweet lady, sweet little tiny lady that life happens comes maybe that's something on your I'd like to involve this in my life I'd like to find love but mm -hmm. knowing when something like that comes into your life you don't there are certain things you don't have a choice on you this is undeniably a good decision and would enhance my life mm -hmm. I'm doing this and so you yeah. get to make those things which feel really great we're like I'll sacrifice lots of stuff to, to make sure this is nourished and well maintained etc and then you start thinking of putting this power or energy into well, how do I keep this and maybe something else? Or where does this take us? Where is like the universe wanting us to go? Astronomy, you know, t-shirt printing. How do these things yeah. all come together? It, well, they do. In weird ways, it all feels pretty natural where like I brought my focus from the external to the internal over COVID. A lot of us did. And like my little family is worth Okay, so if you're a queerdo, uh, like, my family is another lady, a dog, and a cat. So, you know, there, um, that might be slightly outside of a traditional social definition of family. And if you listen to the wrong voices, it's like, that's not a family. Like, that's a make em up That's a fake one. You know, I don't think I'm the only gay to have felt this feeling where, like, he, we are building our own it Our family is what we built. There's a traditional definition of that, but I know what feels like home and family to me, and it's this wee lady and our dog and our cat. And just owning that, sort of coming to understand that better, that like, oh, home and family allowed. Like, we can have that. Yeah. Do that. Good for heart. <laughs> uh, have you seen Lilo been... and Stitch? You know, I haven't. I should. Oh, There's a few of those movies that slip right under my skin and just burrow hard. Moana, one, man. Instant weeping. As soon as I see the water, I'm over. Yeah. Just every human's allowed one Lin-Manuel Miranda project to <laughs> crack them open, and I've found mine. <laughs> All right? Okay? You, I think you will like Lilo and Stitch for that element. And I'm going to give something away a little bit, but they say Ohana means family, and family means no one gets left behind. 
that is the best. That is, if you can yeah. apply that to any group, because yep. think of, we're in comedy. We know so many people, horrible upbringings, childhoods, family dynamics, structures. Comedy is their family. For the longest time, mm-hmm. like the Laugh Factory would be like, come to Thanksgiving. If you're a comedian mm-hmm. and you don't have a place to go, comedy is always trying to give a home to like misfit toys and wayward people and, and the weirdos. And, you know, the, the not, I don't want to say like rejects, but people that might feel like outsiders and getting to feel like, oh, this is a family. It's the best. Yeah. And I, you know, I think a lot, I, I'm, I'm probably not the only comedian that was drawn to it to like learn how to explain myself. You know, comedy is such a narrow th- needle to thread that like the only goal is to make the room laugh. So if I can get good at hitting that button, at getting that response, it's like, I've not that felt that great at connecting to humankind throughout my life pre-comedy, but comedy was a great way to like figure it out how to put myself up there in a way that gets a prescribed response. I can explain myself this way. I can make you get it. I can make you get me this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever drives us to that need, uh, I think it's something a lot of comedians share. I don't think it's the origin story of every comedian, but I do recognize that among us that like some of us are up there talking to a mirror, but the audience is the mirror. And we're just trying to get clear. Like you get, you're seeing, you get it. You see me, right? You're seeing, <laughs> I'm being perceived, right? Yeah. And we, um, I don't, I think, we're, you know, we're a little bit off in times of when we started, but not by too much. And certainly both of us pre-podcasting where, mm-hmm. oh, we should try indoor skydiving. That's kind of the accessibility that doing an open mic started to have. Whereas when you started when there wasn't podcasting and really not a heavy presence of the internet, you had to look sometimes in the back of a newspaper or yeah. you had to find, there's an address I can go to. Yeah. It's the alley. It's the back door. There's a one piece of paper, you write your name and then they just open that door and you can go in and do. St- so when you would be back there just waiting in this alley and you'd look around, everyone there is a stranger, but then over time you start seeing the same faces mm-hmm. over and over. Like we ended up in such a strange part of the universe by some weird invisible pull that the connectivity is almost through how common everything feels where I know you can go today to any open mic and there will be a young white kid out of college saying, my friends think I'm gay. And so like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of 20 somethings are processing their own sexuality at open mic. And it is so cut to 10 years later, that dude's headlining a gay cruise. <laughs> And then, but I also love too that you might find someone that felt very much like an other. I was raised this mm-hmm. way and I'm uh, of this ethnicity and I da 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 da. And then someone would go, oh yeah, you should talk with Tony. All, exactly the same, except no legs. So similar <laughs> jokes, but his are also obviously referencing the legs right. from time to time. And he, then that person might have to be like, oh, my set is all about kind of, I'm so put upon and the world's hard. And then, well, here's Tony. Yikes. So then you get to see yourself through these different lenses of, how is that person processing something that's very similar to what I'm going through? Mm-hmm. It just becomes like this giant sort of therapy thing. But that builds a family for sure because you're sharing things even if they are dark or if they're sometimes not funny, you're sharing. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, at the club, you see what works. But at the, where, we, where, the, the fa- where things are refined, you see what doesn't. And for whatever comedy fan you are, you know, if you've only been to a club, but you love comedy, I cannot recommend going to a good open mic more because you will see not what happens at the club. Yeah. All the things that are overshares, all the things that, (laughs) yeah, 
man, there's elements of my family life that I've had great success flushing out and elements of my family life that have so alienated every audience I have ever presented them to that I just learned not to try. And it could come down to skill level, but boy, no matter how many more tools I added to the tool belt over the years, every time I tried to come back to these like little areas of my life that are like, this is weird, right? Everybody, when this happens and the whole room's like, that's never happened. That is not an, (laughs) that's not a relatable. Yeah. We can't, we actually can't. You said a lot of other weird things we've managed to relate to, but this one we're we're off. We don't know how to, we don't know. (laughs) I'm like, oh, so that is right. This is actually, I should be speaking to someone about this is okay. So that, oh, right. None of you have actually, right. Yeah, the, (laughs) And you don't know. I don't know which it is. I will walk up so confident that this insane Facebook post from a family member is going to hit that everybody's going to be like, that is hilarious and weird. And instead, it's just crickets with people looking at me like, you grew up with that? Like, are you good? Are you sure you're good? (laughs) You're talking to someone, right? It's not just us, right? Oh, man. So that missing that part of, of comedy would be, I don't think I ever really needed that. I, I feel very fortunate in that way. Or like there were things I know for sure that I would dismiss now, no. And then years later, look at me like, oh yeah, I was definitely processing that thing, that, that like hole that everyone's talking about trying to fill or where that come from, where that came yeah. from, what maybe where it stemmed from. I'd feel like no way. I just like being funny. It's just a fun thing to do. And then over time you start looking at your life and some of the behaviors and interactions and it's, it ties into this, I think, of looking at your life from just all these different angles, different places that you get to, different ages, and kind of, and maybe some of that's revisionist history, where you might make it harder on your, than it really was at the time. Like, oh, middle school, I got through it. No, I was like beaten up every day, and you know, maybe you change that. But I think overall, you give yourself a pretty thorough assessment, and hopefully, if you're good to yourself, you just kind of pat yourself on the back and go, yeah, you're doing the best you could. Good try. Well, that's another thing comedians have a strange threshold for is that kind of self-correction. Mm-hmm. That we'll walk off a slaughter, an absolute kill of a set, and be like, can't believe I dropped that tag. Yeah, like, yeah. What was I thinking? How can I not? Like, And I'm still phrasing that that worked just because the crowd was hot. Like, that part's still trash. It were, That was straight up luck that that worked. Or like, yeah. you know, looking at the pictures that came from the event and being like, I fucking wore that. I'm in this sweatshirt for this event, a sweatshirt for this event, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> but it's not that we don't acknowledge the, it, like, don't worry. The ego is very much intact. There's something like, it's a hell, it's like a snake eating its tail of ego where we don't even feel our own attacks. Like the assumption is that I'm going to kill. It's how much, yeah. it's how well, like, of course I killed. What do you, duh. Like, yeah, I kill. But, but I didn't do it to my own standard. If, you know, I think when your competition becomes yourself, you probably improve in a lot of ways, especially in comedy, because psst, no one's competing with you. But <laughs> that's a hard lesson to learn. Um, and I think that's part of where it comes from. But comedians do seem to share that stripe of a full willingness to just tear into themselves post-set. And every other comedian's like, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. No, you did great. But yeah, I... I understand. Right. Yeah. It's... You had a tag there. I remember that tag. It's a great tag. It would have, you're right. It would have killed. Oh, it's <laughs> such a, such a 
jerk move to do. You kill. And maybe you have a smile on your face as you step off. And yeah. then me, I know you missed that tag, and I can't wait to go. Yeah, you didn't say the thing about the training wheels. Do I have a tag for that? And then your smile just... <laughs> but I... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was good overall. No, it was great. It was great. I just no, thought that tag was really tag good. Was I just love that tag. It's just a really good one. <laughs> I was listening for it. You know, I was back here listening for that. But you didn't do it. Ah, <laughs> oh, comedy. I think about it in terms of like playing an instrument or maybe playing a specific song on an instrument and everyone has a different idea in their head. Mm-hmm. I remember when Green Day got popular and I think the singer was very candid about they were vilified in San Francisco where they came from. It was punk oh, yeah. rock. You don't sell out to big record labels and go on Clear Channel mainstream media. Um, I know. I'm from the Bay and that happened when I was 13. So it was very oof. impactful. Like the, cause I loved Green Day, but you know, actually, the Sweet Ladies had a really good take on this um, because I just loved Green Day and then was surprised by the backlash. Like, what? But it is cool. But it sounds like the things that are. But you, why don't we all like this? And it, you know, I get it. There are reasons. Some of them are valid. Some of them are not. But it was the Sweet Lady that like articulated this so well for me that it, it's clicked and I, I've held onto it tight. That like, there are places, especially pre-internet, uh, so like '94 Dookie era. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were places to get cool media, but like it was not served up on a platter. Like things that were inspired by cool stuff or things that came from scenes were difficult to access. And, and there was gatekeeping. Like, you know, even if you did live near enough, a cool thing, it's hard to get in. Yeah. Um, So, you know, like I remember seeing Rushmore in the theater, Wes Anderson's Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And my brain, like, shattered, like, the aesthetics, the character development, everything about it, like, just wrecked me open. But that is a super basic level film lover's film. But I, <laughs> there's not an art house cinema in the suburb I grew up in. So, like, there's something to be said for that art that does pop into the mainstream that is inspired by the things that are outside the mainstream. And there's, like, a good, I love that set, like... You can't be mad at people who found cool stuff through those avenues. It's very hip to shit on that stuff, but it's pointless. And it's, you know, it's a gatekeepy is the cool way to say it, I suppose. But because uh, classist does, isn't right, but it is exclusive in a way that's wildly unnecessary. <laughs> I'm sure I'm out of my bounds because I feel I'm always catching up to that. I feel like I lived the impactful moments of my life oblivious i was out in the desert like on a horse a lot of the time just by myself which i think had a lot of value in that i i could be with my thoughts for hours and hours and i think that for if you're not doing that at a young age it becomes harder as you get older the flip side of that is i'd get on the bus and i'd see someone with a jacket with a bunch of patches that i didn't know any of them and i would just they were just an outsider to me we're friends i know my friend emily we're friends in the way of like, Hey, how's it going? Mind if I sit here? And then we would just talk about school or mm-hmm. I think we were like in the same 4-H thing where obviously she didn't want to be there doing that. Her family was like, get on that horse, sweetie. And she's like, I want to listen to the pixies. Yeah. And she, <laughs> so she knew all this stuff and was in on this subculture and who's to say how like subversive the pixies were at the time. But I don't think they were mainstream big FM clear channel bands. 
Well, it's right on that line, right? Like where if you could get it in the suburbs, like it's not cool. Like there's always a, another layer in the onion. Where yeah. like, sure, the Pixies are cool until you meet someone who thinks they're cooler than the Pixies. And then they have five bands that you've never heard of. And you're like, sorry, it's not Minor Threat or whatever. And I know that <laughs> reference is bad. Don't at me. Like I'm not, I'm 41. I'm in overalls. Like it's, oh, it's done for me. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, there's always the person that knows, like, well, the bassist went to college with this person. And it's like, that's awesome. You know, it's you find your way through whatever means gets you there. There's not there's no art that's exclusive and somebody's success isn't like their fault. It's not Wes Anderson's fault that Petty, that like a a legendary producer wanted to make him a success. It just sort of happened. And now we all get Grand Budapest Hotel. And if it was an art house film, people would freak out over it, but it's not. Like if Green Day wasn't popular, everybody would be like, you don't know Dookie. Fucking right. Oh, yeah. I used to do a joke about that and and sort of that idea in like Christianity. If it was only told to you in the back of uh, bookstores and cool places, you might talk about successful cults. Yeah. That'd be one that could get you if it was on the down low. For sure. The thing I was, I, I remember that I was going to say about Green Day is that Billy Joel was like, oh, I, it turned out I liked having a hit song. It's, yeah. it's a bummer, <laughs> but man, when you feel like what it feels like to have a song being played on the radio a lot and people singing it at your shows and jumping around, maybe other people would want to be John Cage or do something very different and always stay away from that level of, connectivity but maybe mm-hmm. you're like i don't know I, it feels good to have human beings having fun all at the same time facing the same direction from something i created i could totally get that and so yes. everyone yeah. is is having their own bumpers on as to what turns they're going to take i'm going to make more hits or i want to shy away from hits i think you just have to figure out what's in your heart and that's hard to do because you're only your heart's only shaped by what you see and the people out there who have already done it even yeah and you approach the same activity with two different hearts so it comes out the same you know what happens on the other side ends up different i just watched the uh the tony hawk documentary that's out and very briefly tony hawk is like one of the he has a, a very charismatic characteristic that just shines from very early on and from like a little 12 year old skinner skinny skateboarder kid you know at the time in the like mid to late 80s Gators were like tough punk rock beefcakes and had no time for this tiny string bean. And there's this kind of story that weaves through the movie about, you know, one of those kind of classic skateboarders who's had a, a lifetime, a career, career's worth of interactions with Tony Hawk. And it's this guy covered in tattoos, so weathered, just smoking a cigarette and a filthy hat, just like after years of explaining how much he had bullied Tony Hawk and felt totally justified in it, they had just had this very human moment together. And he's like wiping away tears like, he's a good dude. Just like, <laughs> you know, it comes down to these two people approach the same activity from two very different perspectives. And like, you know, they were held together by that activity for years. And eventually they were just human together, even though their perspective was so different. The proximity over the years just revealed the humanity they both have inevitably. They mm-hmm. shave off enough stuff and... Enough callous sloughs away, and it's still just raw baby pink, raw baby skin in there. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a worthy watch for artists. I think I found myself, uh, you know, a lot of the the story is kind of framed on how uh, this person who's achieved a lot of success in their field approaches learning new things. I like and it. I think for anyone, that's a pretty rewarding and interesting approach. 
Yeah, to be in the penthouse and not be motivated or inspired or ambitious or I just I think a lot of times in life if you have a a rabbit to chase, you're pretty lucky. And everyone yes. we're measured by that we are not billionaires. We didn't catch the rabbit and divest and all these stupid things and merge and be acquired and do a cutthroat corporate takeover with various other rabbits until you have billions of rabbits and now you're a success. But I think chasing a rabbit, having something that gets you excited to go do it. Mm-hmm. So like even going back to being in the desert and, you know, building the family, maybe that's, maybe that is more of a rabbit for you than I want to be on a private jet, you know, heading to Carnegie Hall Yes. Well, no, I want to have this family that really cares about each other and listens to each other and is trustworthy and kind and patient or whatever, whatever values, you know, that you have that you want to place into this, then that becomes a really, whatever it takes to get there. Oh, we'll go make t-shirts. Mm-hmm. I'll, you know, do astronomy tours, which we haven't even touched on that, which I think is I know. So I'm fascinating. so sorry. We can kind of do, you can edit everything you want. We could just talk for the next hour about space, but I know you have stuff to do. Uh, but yes, space, also space. Uh, <laughs> I think it's just, one, I never edit anything. And two, the conversations always just kind of take on whatever shape they are meant to. And a lot of times it ends with me going like, sorry, we never got to rocket science, but I hope you like <laughs> this other thing. But- I find when I talk to comedians right now, especially, comedi- you know, a lot of podcasting for comedians comes down to talking about comedy because people seem endlessly fascinated with the process we go through to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And understandably, I listen to it too. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking about this stuff, you know, it's on my mind a lot. And when I get to talk to my friends who are still in the mix in some way, and again, it's not that I'm not, I just don't know how I'll step back forward into that world or how those relationships will play out next. I think I used to have a much better sense of what was coming next than I do now in terms of comedy. Um, So I want to talk about it a lot. I want to see what other people think about like, well, how do you feel about how this makes you behave and think how do you feel about comedy and how it affects your relationship how do you feel about (laughs) comedy and how it changes your life how it takes your time (laughs) how do we feel about this (laughs) yeah i i I feel like pre-march of 2020 maybe you were getting a bit of this too it was a lot of comedians it was pretty saturated so being out at the showcase shows even even some of the shows that weren't necessarily you know uh, like an open mic, you know, most shows that you and I would do, I would say wouldn't be open mm-hmm. mic, but they feel like that. You might even refer to them that way. Like, well, you know, there's eight comics. Everyone's doing 10 minutes. Sure. It feels for lack of a better term, like an open mic, but it's maybe not. But to be there, to be one of those names or to feel like maybe you should go watch in case someone dropped out or just to say mm-hmm. hi to friends. I mean, to some degree on certain nights, that was really fun. Oh, I want to see a bunch of people. I know everyone will be at this show. Yeah. Other nights I would run into comedians that are like, it's just too packed. And I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I'm seeing someone now and being on the couch and hanging out with them is a little more, so it softens you. You know, to be a road dog comedian, you have to eschew every other thing that could penetrate that shield you have around you because it has to be your main what? rabbit. What? So you're saying it isolates you from friends and family? You're saying it systematically <laughs> it isolates you from those things that could nurture you and now it makes it's you dependent a, it's not on a, this Kayla, it's not a decentralized to... cult. It's, it's, it's a loving, nurturing environment of friends who care about each other. And owners who profit from your sales of liquor. I don't understand what you're not seeing about this. Just because you put in time and never get anything back. What are you? Yeah, no, it's um, that's not entirely. There's, it's not a... Uh, it's transactional as that, but it is an interesting, it's, I've been thinking about it for years, thinking about it before March, 2020 and so much after just that this, you know, 
a comedian's relationship with comedy is really something. Uh, and the fact that so many people listen to like comedy podcasts stacked on true crime podcasts about cults is like not a surprise. It does not surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, there's a sadness to the need, the ego, the the way that like um, exposure is used as a commodity in a lot of ways. Well, think about it. They might stumble on you or this many people know about you now. But that's not money. That every Clearly the world more than ever needs entertainment. It needs some quote-unquote art. No one's paying for the gifts they share. No one is paying each time they share. Check out this bit. It's okay. You should have to pay transactionally every time you share something if you're trying to make a point or make your friend's day better or whatever. But comedians get to see that. Their thing might change hands 10 million times in a day. Computer to computer, device to device. And at the end of it, they a record label or whoever, an algorithm, a tech company would go, a lot of exposure today. <laughs> You'd be like, what? How How did on earth did that, did that ever get considered fair or viable or worth pursuing? Because so it, careers in entertainment have always been that ephemeral that like, well, if you learn to tap dance and you go down to the tavern, you just never know. Um, mm-hmm. oh, you're doing tap dancing. We're into the hot high step out here. So sorry. You know, whatever. Like the, we watched this happen where there was a flattening of access from when I started comedy. And I, you know, and since you did before, this is also true for you, like pre Twitter, pre pre internet, pre all of the easy ways to share what we create. Like there was just this line where before it took, it was a privilege to make your own stuff. Um, and the idea that anybody would see it is a huge question mark to where everybody could make everything and share it everywhere. And sometimes people do it. Sometimes people do get plucked. Sometimes it works. Mm -hmm. You can't say it doesn't. People do get writing jobs from Twitter. People do get picked. The shows do get made from threads. You can't, the, it's happening all around you. Uh, It's gambling. I suppose that you're at the table throwing the dice when you know full well that like mathematically craps odds are so easy to see they're in favor of the casino and still it's the only game I play because it's so exciting Uh, (laughs) because you might win. Yeah. But, you know, I think entertainment has always been full of those, but we watched the rise and the predominance. um, We watched the rise of a new form come into predominance where you know, it's considered so normal now for comedians to be self-producing so much material and just releasing it into the wind with hopes. It's, and I'm not mad. I just, it's simply an observation. It was not that way. I missed it. I look at YouTube and I'm just like, what you could have done. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't. (laughs) And the fact that it's not too late is a credit to the success of YouTube as a concept. (laughs) Yeah, you could. I mean, if you had the tenacity, and that's where it maybe comes down to the which heart are you listening to? Because if there is the the casino heart that is saying, hey, I just added 0.5% to these odds. That doesn't sound like much, but given 10,000 so hands, much. Yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. So I, what I need to do is like take advantage of this algorithm. And if I'm filming myself every day screening and this boy they they would set a sitcom out in the desert tomorrow if they could they've tried everywhere and now look we have the characters we we can build this world and you start filming it maybe you hate it maybe you hate it and you can't stand going hey gang out here desert life hashtag and you're (laughs) you're doing all the stupid facial gestures and things but 
you post it and it works. The algorithm starts to understand that you oh, pay for the, all the adjoining lots. Yeah. I don't, I can't, I, you never know. And I had friends make, I won't even call it, oh man, it's hard to, I had friends make a daily series that I think is the funniest thing I've seen on the internet. And they worked so hard on it all the time. Every day it went up and it went, oh, they did it for like years. It's the funniest fucking thing I've seen. And it, it, they just had to stop because you can't keep, you can't keep after a while. You never know what breaks. It just, I would watch that forever yeah. thinking like, I can't wait for when this is a show because there's no physical way in the universe that that won't happen. There's no, there's no multiverse in which this isn't a widely successful yeah. pro and, and nope. <laughs> yeah. Nope. I know that's the, the harsh sort of the same creator that of that series did the funniest ALS dunk challenge video I ever saw. And it was like, Oh, I congratulations on your viral video. And nope. Nope, I just don't understand. He's had things go viral. Like, he's successful. He's he's had lots of opportunities. So I can, like, sort of cite this as a person who's just like, man, you never know. <laughs> you just never know when the dart <laughs> leaves your hand, like, where it's going to stick. That's true. But yeah, I'm too often wrong. This I is think the I can move. Re- Silent. <laughs> well, your friend's doing that. Hopefully they liked it. I think that's where I always fall into is I, I just – have a, I'm hard-headed in that I just want to do the things I like doing and figure out a way to hopefully have them have some success as opposed to doing mm-hmm. something I hate but knowing there's a high level of, like of tangible success because I did that to some degree again with like the, a television show where I just if I had to choose between those two worlds I would probably choose your friend's web thing to go I don't know like yeah. later you're gonna die one day and Yes, the internet is just completely saturated, but all it takes is someone stumbling upon that and sharing it. And now people go, oh, I'm so much, I'm so glad they made that as opposed to mm-hmm. 900 episodes of some dumb TV show or not to uh, belittle the, the show I was a part of. I just mean any show. I just mean something it, that you yes. might, you might not have your heart in. You know, you would say, I'd rather make something that I care about. And if it's not a su- success, quote unquote, it's still something that my heart was into. So what we're saying is universal basic income. I think is the, is the, the, the when it comes around to it. Well, I would imagine you have such uh, interesting thoughts. One being from Silicon Valley, that you know the area that if you're not up every day, staying up till three in the morning writing code and pitching VCs and working, 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 work, you don't like being a human being and helping the the society as a whole. You're not helping society, and I feel like you and I know so many people that sleep till noon make a beautiful painting, maybe plunk out some riffs on a guitar or some instrument yep. and make something pretty that they yep. love doing. They loved spending mm-hmm. that time doing it, but it wouldn't be considered work. But with, with universal basic income, hey, you want to go write code till three in the morning? You can do that. Go for it. Go nuts. But you can't act like because you're genetically predisposed to do that, that you're somehow overcoming some desire to not do that. That's bullshit. You love doing it. Well, I mean, we keep coming back to cults, but like you're seeking an affirmation, like a, you want a cycle to continue that you work till 3am and it's horrible. There's no way that's, it's horrible. And the only way you can affirm that that's an okay decision is that somebody is in the office next to you going like, yeah, bro, me too. 
like without all of the blue vests, because that's all San Francisco streets are full of is like men in blue work shirts with the blue fleecy vests. Uh, they all wear blue and gray <laughs> fleecy vests uh, with the little name lanyards. Like unless somebody else is there in the uniform next to you, like you have made a bad decision. You need the echo chamber to keep echoing because as soon as somebody says like this workplace sucks and these hours are literally criminal people died for the right to a weekend, uh, then you're not you're off the team. Um <laughs> <laughs> we had a labor movement for a reason <laughs> code is not coal um yeah but we it's... we read those stories and and those get perpetuated over and over tell us about your road to success well when i dropped out you know i knew i had to work hard and so it was a lot of late nights right. a lot of coffee you know code 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 and then we finally got picked up we didn't have a lot of users but then we transitioned and we pivoted and we made it this way and then we really added our user base when this happened. And then finally, when we were purchased by Google, then now I'm a billionaire. And you'd be like, okay, so the end result of that story is that you sold your thing for a lot of money and therefore all that work was worth it. There's some world where like undeniably would say that is a success story because you don't have your, your future generations of your family might not have to worry about crushing poverty. However, why is as that... a human species, what the fuck is wrong with us? We're sober. There's nothing like thinking about space that will bring you back to Earth and going like, well, gee, money and borders are fucking dumb. Like, it's such a dumb, it's such a phenomenally dumb system. I have issues with capitalism. I don't know that we've, I guess my position is that we have humans have a lot to do philosophically to find a system of governance. And I, if you need an economy, okay, one of those. But like, we're super bad at this. And the, you know, using money as a measure of success is always insane because there are so many dumb things you can do to make money that aren't fulfilling and don't help society. And in fact, actively add like trillions of bits of plastic to the ocean every fucking year. You know, it's just exhausting. It's like, <laughs> oh, the economy is just, um, yeah, a rickety, a rickety shack. Um, and it makes me very nervous when you expand your view out, like, we're stuck in an economy that is going to collapse everything around us and we won't talk about other options. It's just like not in the, we can't, there's nobody that's got an idea that isn't money that is not getting like actively killed by like a state government or like whatever happens to those people who have good, beautiful ideas or whatever. Not me. I'm in a desert compound, but. Um, this is going to be a bummer, but you glitched out a little bit during, uh, the last, maybe I, my recording seconds, is still so. good, but yeah, I saw that. Yeah. It's uh, okay, cool. I can, yes. I can listen to it. I then. think my rant yeah, was properly sorry. captured on my um, end, but no, just the frustration of like Elon good. Musk trying to go, you cannot trust the son of a miner in space. He's out there trying to find a nugget of gold flying through the air. And it's not, we don't need more gold on earth. Like the, <laughs> the complex elements present here are the results of <laughs> thousands of generations of stars going supernova. Like, it's such a beauty. Don't, why are you messing? Don't, <laughs> why are you trying to find a space diamond? Like, what's wrong with what? Uh, but the fact that we'd, you know, there'd ever be a concern for any human that their future generations would starve or suffer is, uh, says something about us. Why, why would that be a concern? Oh, undoubtedly. Can't we? Yeah. Can we not? No, I, I feel like uh, the bulk of these um, sketches and things that I've been writing, this little world that I've created is just mm -hmm. sort of a response to what you were just talking about. Just 
my everyone's interpreting that and it goes back to what we were talking about maybe at the beginning mental health you know it people everyone's mm-hmm. feeling what you just described everyone is seeing it everyone is can't wrap their head around the immense amount of resources that some people have versus the absolute dearth that other people are forced to deal with and be told they're lazy or they're dumb or they're whatever it is that they're crazy and that we just mm-hmm. look past everyone's like processing that zooming out from space and just looking at this species to me is the easiest way to to find some catharsis in it and just find a lot mm-hmm. of flaws and a lot of oh 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 it's just that if we're looking at it from the level of person to person and you might start to uh, generalize things or even make sense of them in some way but if you zoom out then you're like oh it's just crazy to begin with i mean even at the hunter gatherer mm-hmm. level it might have been somewhat sustainable but that certainly wasn't any kind of uh, place that you could ke- expect a species to stay at long term. Not with this frontal lobe setup that we have. We were un- five hundred calories in that brain and useless claws and teeth. Like we're sort of inevitable. Right. I, that's how I think of life and Earth in general. Is that we are totally as unlikely as we are. We are absolutely inevitable. This is just what happens when you put liquid water with a heat source in the middle out in space for four billion years. We are. Just the result of elements being here. Um, it's not bigger than that. It's not smaller than that. That's just what it is. Uh, it's <clears throat> our inability to, um, man, that macro micro thing, the ability to expand out and see humankind um, and have all these great ideas for how we'd get along. It is really tough to make that operate. Um, on the one-to-one micro level as we keep discovering over and over again as a species. And space is an interesting revealer of all that because space go space is so big. Duh. <laughs> uh, space is so big in the sense that achieving any exploration there asks all of us, the best and the worst, that the most of our scientific explosions of knowledge and uh, and exploration and excitement happen on the edges and heels of human conflict, so much of our motivation to understand space and the, the universe around us is based on these like super petty micro conflicts. You know, finding X-ray information because we're looking for Russian spies is super hilarious to me. Going to the moon <laughs> with Nazi scientists is like, well, that's a whoopsie doodle. Like that's what it <laughs> takes. It's just, uh, it's always good and bad. Space is always good and bad. There's a satellite that's a piece of space junk because we have lost the password to communicate with us. <laughs> that's so huge. That to me is the most, hu- that's so human that we are capable of collaborating to send a piece of equipment into space to communicate back with our planet. And we lo- we lose the keys. We can't. <laughs> I think my earliest stand up bits were all about this idea not articulated as well not like with such great examples but just the idea of robots i was so fixated on our planes crash and our trains crash and our cars crash into each other all day long but robots like synth you know yes. making a synthetic version of the most complicated organ in the universe that we're going to nail that we're going to like we're really going to get it we're going to get that this. so perfectly they're going to overtake us and make us subservient to them and there's nothing we can do about it cuz it's too perfect and we definitely didn't mess up and we're humans and we're the best i yeah, just no way i couldn't get over that it's just the 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 hubris there the the humans never learning our lesson that like we lost the keys we lose the path yeah. this is something we do all the time 
Well, something I love about your comedy, David, is that you don't like excellent storyteller and you could mine your own life story for anything you wanted. But as a comedian, you reveal the way you think when you talk about whatever topic you want. Dragons, robots, trees, <laughs> like, you know, it, it, to have observational comedy be so revealing personally of a point of view is just um Point of view is exactly the phrase. It's hard to get there. And your point of view is so clear when you approach fun <laughs> topics, which is, uh, it's aspirational. You know, the more I goof off about space, the more I'm like, there's an album in here. Some there's a clean album in here somewhere. It'd be really fun to talk about this stuff in new fun ways. But I, I hope you're you one do. of those people I think about just like, I bet, I bet David would be really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> What's with this compliment fest? My goodness. Oh, is... enjoy. Just... Well, it's so, it and up. it's so sincere. It's not just like kind of boilerplate things where, oh, you're such a natural on stage. Or, you know, the things you look people like might you're say. You're having fun out you, there. Yeah, you look, you're just so <laughs> off the cuff and just so comfortable. Like, well, you could, <sighs> I think what you said was felt very specific and, and thoughtful. And I always liked when I just always thought the most vulnerable thing you could do is share how you think about things people are like mm -hmm. i was at this wedding and i got diarrhea yeah oh I, I i can't believe i'm going to share this i'm like well you're you're kind of the hero of the story because you are sharing it there's a built-in kind of thank you for That's sharing true. it and i if you share a thought you know if you're sharing your views on what if man what if space is like this i think you i think it i hope you try it because i think you'll really like it i think it'll um, I th it just seems so perfectly suited to your ability to communicate and, and like understand the space on, on such a more comprehensive level than I assume I do. I don't think I know it nearly as well as you speak about it. The crash course of the last few months has been intense and really fun. Um, I'm like proud of a lot. I, I've learned a lot faster than I'm proud of that. But I think the thing I take out of it is that this knowledge is accessible that through this whole podcast in which we talked about space very, very little, what I can say for sure is that um, there are gatekeep. Uh, don't grow boss gatekeep. It's, this is all stuff there for you to know that the skies above you are ready to hang out with you. Go out around the same time every night for like five minutes. It doesn't take five hours. You don't have to pour over books, but like a little bit of time around the same time every night and you'll start to know what's up there. And don't, I don't, don't learn its name. You don't have to crack a book to know that it's Antares rising. It's just the big red one. It's like to, the big red one that comes up over your garbage can is like <laughs> a perfectly acceptable level, a, a way to approach um, learning like the map of the skies and le learning like why we learn about space. I find a lot of reward in thinking about this stuff, but it's not stuff we necessarily think about day to day. So like, finding a reason to bring it into your thoughts, finding a reason to think about your place in the universe is really rewarding. I feel more grounded. I feel like a lot of the things I kind of felt philosophically now have like a better ground, like grounding there. There's knowledge that I'd sort of gleaned over or assumed the scientists knew or whatever. And I was like, you know, space and like the universe <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But <clears throat> there's, a lot that's very satisfying scientifically and a lot you can just read into if you want to a lot of patterns of life that repeat on grand and micro scales a lot of you know uh traits that are very easy to personify 
which says something since we're literally made of elements created in star the fact that i'm looking at a star being like she looks pretty tonight is like <laughs> well what does that say why is it so easy to relate you know there's yeah the feeling of link being linked is there i'm not a i'm a i'm a big gay atheist so for me <laughs> looking up is a, a good way to feel connected to something larger which i think is a human need that religion fills but like wrong we're deep enough in the podcast that i can say it does this <laughs> i can say that right <laughs> oh man we're gonna get Listen, so whatever much trouble. gets you through please just whatever gets you through um it's good with me but for me it is the that our larger place in the universe and and how humans have had this generational conversation that gets us closer and closer to understanding it and that makes me feel connected not just to like the big expanse up there but to people who came before and since connecting to people seems to be a theme that runs through my life trying to do that it's kind of incredible to feel this connection to this like thousands of years of conversations between humans to get to this place where we can analyze the light coming from a distant star or galaxy and break apart its properties and understand it that took so many of us keeping the conversation going that's so human that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> stars live, you know, this knowledge is longer than one life. Stars live so much longer than one life. We only put the, together the p- picture of the sky by looking at stars kind of one at a time in different phases. And when you're walking down the street, you're doing the same thing. You know, you look at a tiny baby and you can see its future. You look at, uh, you know, someone w- old waiting for a bus on a park bench and you picture their past. We're doing that same trick in the skies it's how we get to know each other it's how we get to know the broader universe i don't know it's also taking something big and scary and making it grabbable um so yeah i I think there are lots of ways to approach knowing about space and i meet a lot of people doing this that are like oh i you know i just could never i don't know any i don't know i don't know any of the constellations and i can't learn it i don't understand any of the math like well the stars are still there (laughs) it's okay you can relate to them however you want it is all rewarding uh yeah it's i've been it's nuts to look up and be like oh there's regulus huh (laughs) i know i uh was it a i think i've told this story before but i i think you might get a kick out of it where two things like I was at this taping where Neil deGrasse Tyson was there and he told a story about running into James Cameron and saying something about uh, Titanic in the backdrop they used the wrong hemisphere they used the, the night oh, sky of the wrong right. hemisphere and James Cameron said oh yeah I guess if we make a sequel we'll get that right and maybe we that would have made it an extra billion dollars like kind of belittling <laughs> him just like who cares but then he starts yes. to make Avatar and like one of the first people he calls is like hey I want to make sure all the space is right on this one that, that did bother me that I thought yeah. about that and then the taping's over and we had just started Professor Blastoff and my connect, my person I knew one of the writers and he was like there's Neil if you want to talk to him now's your chance so I walk over and I'm like hey can I talk to you about a pot he goes walk with me and he's like this giant man and puts his arm around me and we start walking out he bursts open this door yeah, and it's like right? he's gigantic and there's this loading dock and down below is a waiting like town car with the door open but it's below the loading dock and so we're up above it the door bursts open it's like a dusky sky and he goes behold venus and then just like whisks away in this coat that was like a big pea coat but it felt kind of like a cape into this awaiting town car and takes <laughs> off <laughs> just like it was so it was it was like one of those moments where well that's silly and i'm not really into like you know superheroes and that kind of thing but 
that humans on Earth could look at the sky immediately, point out all Venus. of the just like a map immediately. There's that. Yep. There's my friend. There's my friend. Anyway, I've got to go boom, and disappear. When you talk about connectivity, or you talk about like classes or classism, education plays a factor in it. But I love yes. the choice. I love when someone. Maybe they're born into a life where you're going to go to malls and want to collect different types of shoes and you're going to like UFC fights and you're going to be in the herd. You're going to like these things yeah. that you're told to like. You're going to be drinking Bud Light and being in the herd. And then one of them just looks out and looks up and the stars kind of invite you to suddenly you read more books. And not only the authors start to like feel like your friends, but they reference other books and it becomes this little class that you can join. It's free to join if you're just interested and then you, you, I would imagine you feel kind of connected to that in a way of, well, now I know some of the friends at this party. I can recognize Venus up in the sky. I can recognize just by looking potentially what hemisphere yep. I'm seeing. I, I think that's fantastic. It's, it's so much of it is like, it depends on how you learn. If you're an auditory learner, somebody can explain how the night sky moves and you're like, got it. But if you are a visual learner, it's going to take watching it happen. And that mm -hmm. you only get by like standing outside. Um, and I, I mean, the idea that you've, the, the part that does feel like classist or sort of like, uh, I don't know if elitist is the right word or divided is, you know, this barrier of knowledge, but the night sky has been there for us to relate to just always. And, you know, stars have had different names, give it your own. Like it's, I just, um, find space to be exciting and not foreboding and I don't want that you know the fact that it takes a bazillion dollars to send a telescope into orbit or even that a ground telescope costs a few thousand dollars like you don't even need a pair of binoculars just throw out all those barriers to entry like there's a, a very accessible relationship to form with the night sky that I think is worth making and I only had it casually before Oh, the moon, I'd say. And now it's like my entire calendar is built around <laughs> the moon cycle, which is kind of wild, but um, <laughs> worth it. Worth it. It can feel like it's too much as a hobby. It's expensive or it's overwhelming. And like, don't do any of that then. Just go out for the same fight. When you take your dog out around the same time every night, look up. And over the next few months, you're going to see it. You will see it. The whole map will click into place. You'll understand how it moves. You'll have a sense of being on a rotating planet. You'll appreciate that your planet is on a different part of its orbit in a different part of a year. You'll like feel it uh, intuitively because we've spent generations like building that knowledge and we can share it like, oh, that thing you're observing, it's this. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I like to think of it as a very accessible hobby. Um, so I obviously enthusiastically share it that way. Because I, I didn't know it. the shit. Well, I couldn't point up at Regulus. I didn't know. And it's knowable. You can learn it. You can learn it a lot faster than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's I didn't know Polaris now. was a trinary star system. <laughs> it is. It's three little stars up there. They're not little. It's three big stars. It's three stars. Anyway. Well, uh, hopefully I'll get to. Well, I hope you come on a star tour. tour. Please. Me too. Yeah, to. I'm. I'm. Uh, I've got the fishing hook, which is a beautiful place to stay. And I'm starting to put the bait on the line, um, which is like getting it all dialed in and reaching out to all the people that I miss and love because I'm pretty bad at going back into Los Angeles, but I think I've got something worth driving out to the desert for. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. 
I'll set up the little awesome. podcast studio, and every ca- podcast I've been a guest on, I'll just try to encourage a on-site recording. <laughs> Come and play out here. Thanks I love for it. I'll take you up the on desert. That. Yeah. Go stand in the misters. Well, I really appreciate you. Um, it's been so fun to catch up and just hear your voice and do these sketches, and then like hear this enthusiasm about space. It's um, I I just really appreciate that you took the it's time. Awesome. It's really nice uh, catching up with you. Back at you. Uh, I hope, uh, you know, we have a good, more good excuses to do it again. And I appreciate uh, the reaching out. It's something I've done lightly a few times over the past couple of years. But um, I, it Matt, thank you. for It's hard to do and it matters. Everybody's got frayed relationships from the past couple of years. And we're all looking for ways to get back in touch with people. And clearly it's, it's darn rewarding. So thanks for doing it. Oh, that means a lot that you said that. I appreciate it. And um, way to write? What? Yeah, way to write cool stuff. We're glitching again, dang it. I know. But we're finding our way back to why we make stuff in the first place. So I'm I'm glad glad to be a part. Yeah. And I will keep keep bugging you with cool stuff to make. And um, yeah, this meant a lot to me. So I think thanks a lot. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. So funny that, uh, like, again, uh, that go, remembering Pepper Bellies is just funny to me. And we've all had those experiences, right, where, uh, sorry, I know my connection's unstable, but, like, you've been in that room yeah. where you're stunned to be there and everyone else is there every day. You know, those moments in your career where you're like, I can't believe I made it. And there's somebody behind you with a clipboard just like, get the fuck out of my way. Um, which is kind of fun. It was Eliza Skinner that gave me great advice that was just like, oh, you got to, I mean, you have to find another way to enjoy those emotions. Because if you're, you have to be cool enough to be in the room. You don't, like Wiggly Puppies, <laughs> there's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of space for Wiggly. And it was the most gentle way to put it. It's not like, don't feel that emotion. It's like not in the room. You know, you freak out later <laughs> somewhere else, advice. but like it's that. not in, yeah, the, like, in the room. You are a cucumber. You are very man, cool. One time I, I oh, uh, okay. played yeah. basketball with Adam Sandler and we're the same size. So I guarded him and I was like, he's standing out there beforehand talking to a friend of mine. And I was just like, oh, hey, I'm a oh, big fan. I, I would feel like I would never say that, but I, I knew I needed to say something. And I, I loved him. I still love him. And I was, and he, he was real funny about it and like gracious. Right. And then we went in and just played like, the last thing he wanted was me following up and down the court. Like, no, but seriously, this movie, when you did this, I just was like, ah, there's that guy. (laughs) Yeah. So, so we just have to act. And this movie, and then another person that I've seen on screen saying funny things that not only like made me laugh throughout my childhood, but like heavily influenced it. And you just have to, all right, ball, ball in, here you go. And then we're just like dri- dribbling down the court pretending like can't be with oh, yeah. puppy, but I know exactly how that feels. Yep. And it's so hard, especially yeah. when the people that oh, for sure. yeah, Tig aren't was like... like A-list celebrities, like comedy famous. <laughs> like I lost my fucking mind when I met Laura Keitlinger. I lost my shit when I lost Tig, who has subsequently become more famous, but to me was like, I was shocked that that Fairfield wasn't just like rioting outside Pepperbellies because Tig, I was like, it's Tig, do you not know? Do you not she know? And like, nobody knows. A couple knows. two nobody minute knows. scenes as nobody Officer knows. Tig on a Comedy Central uh, show. Yeah. Perhaps the line can start behind me. And people are like, who? <laughs> yeah, Officer Tig. Excuse me. 
Duh. Yeah, I shocked. Shocked. So you'll be like just shaky need in front of someone who can absolutely go to the grocery <laughs> store with no problem. Someone who still has to balance their checkbook. And I'm just like, your work means the world to me. And it's like, okay, can, are you getting in my Uber or not? Because I got to go. That's so funny. <laughs> well, I hope the thing that I mentioned at the beginning wasn't an issue at all. And it sounded normal and rhythmic. And I'm sorry that we had to end the conversation, particularly because of technological issues. Although she lives way out in the desert now, so that was really the only way we could do this conversation. I think overall, it was well worth it. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure, Caitlin, as you heard in the thing, kind of processing what's next? What is life? What does it mean? The stars, the universe, all of it. There's a lot of existential stuff and trying to make sense of what your little role within it I think that's a big part of what this podcast will do with a lot of the people I chat with, and hopefully you enjoy that. I just can't help but think that uh, life's going to be unpredictable, and who knows, maybe in five years we'll be talking to her from a private jet as some sort of comedy thing took off. You just never know. They, they, they go all, all directions. I've seen people move away and give up, next thing you know, be plucked out. I've seen people just grind away and stick with it and stick with it and have some success Later on, you just never know. But anyway, I, uh, oh, great. You hearing that? Oh, it stopped. Okay, good. (laughs) Podcasting these days, you guys, can be a little bit of a challenge. I apologize for the delays. I apologize uh, if it's thrown off your schedule. If you're just like, "Ah, I can't keep up. I need it to come out on schedule every Monday. That's where you can chip in and help out with something like the Patreon. This show is made possible from contributions from listeners just like you. It really does help, and it makes the show feel like it has value. And web hosting and then file, like Dropbox and uh, data collection. A recent guest, the power went out, and my batteries in my Zoom recorder were dead, and therefore I just had these two files that showed zero bytes. Follow all these tutorials and do all these stupid disk recovery things. And I only managed to salvage like 20 minutes and I called a data recovery place and they were like, oh yeah, we can fix that. Uh, come in and if we find it, it's it's only $300. It's like, I like this conversation a lot. I don't know if it's worth $300. The Patreon doesn't pull in that much per month. So that seems like a, a poor choice in a one week investment. But if we grow and grow it, Maybe then there will be. I know you're getting this from every angle. For only a cup of coffee and all that, I don't feel that way. You have to really like the show. You have to really have uh, disposable income that you can say, you know, this is just burning a hole in my pocket. I'd like to support people that make things uh, that I don't have to listen to a bunch of ads throughout. And here, this must feel a bit like an ad. So I'll digress. But um, I hope you liked part two. And a big theme throughout it was kind of what is next? What happened? How did this thing that I was pursuing so hard get sort of disrupted so monumentally? Some people just powered through and kept doing Zoom shows and somehow stayed the course. And for other people, that really wasn't an option. And comedy took some strange turns. I've been writing a lot of sketches and kind of diving into that world lately. And so therefore, stand up and driving out and being around people and in public and crowds uh, hasn't really been something at the forefront of my mind but that's a that's been a strange process to come to grips with this thing that defined 20 years of my life and I was talking with a friend recently my friend Brian Gutman 
listens to this show, has been on the show. And we were both talking about how, and you could hear this in talking with Caitlin, the people you meet, the, the friends you make along the way, some of your most uh, transformative moments in life, you can look back and remember exactly what mood you're in and what led you to make this decision, whatever that is. Maybe you got into powerlifting or you got into rowing or reading or audiobooks. Everyone has a thing where like, oh, this changed how I look at things. And for Brian and I, it was going to comedy on nights when you're tired, when you're like, who cares? Once I hear my stupid idea and then you see some friends and everyone's kind of holding this secret like, oh, when we when I break away from here and they call my name, I'm going to go up in front of everyone and share an idea. But sometimes you you do that or your friend does that and it everyone is laughing and having fun. Who doesn't want to give that to a room full of people? And the connectivity you feel coming back at you, it's not like staring on it in your hand and on a device, the detachment there. You're in a room and you feel this indescribable connective energy that makes being alive, makes being part of a community, I'm getting a little um, rose-colored here. But really, it does feel like something. It's indescribable. If you haven't done it, it's just one of those things where you walk off stage going, I can't forget, I'll never forget how this feels, especially knowing coming in I was tired, I was in a kind of a bad mood, or I was feeling a little uh, less than confident in what I was going to do. And then you walk, sometimes you walk out of there and you're like, hey, this, this was the right idea to do in life. And then like Caitlin talked about the cult aspect of like having to get good at it and do these sort of unpaid internships and gigs where you drive way out of town and maybe get a free soft drink or a plate of chips out of the deal. All of the people that you know well, the most ubiquitous figures in comedy, the most highly paid, they all did that. The, the people that are the most famous all did those things and then everyone just like shattered glass and these little fractals. Everyone has a different line going a different direction. Some go longer than others. Some are bigger, more noticeable. But they go in these strange directions that are unpredictable. A lot of twists and turns. The pandemic obviously created a a huge turn, a, an, um, an unmissable turn in the crack, in the glass. Too many analogies. Anyway, I thought this song, this is new from a band by Low Moon, was applicable to how it feels to have something that you are pursuing. And that, looking back, is probably the most fun. Have, getting to have a dream. A lot of people just cruise along going, yeah, nothing ever really sparked me. I don't know. I just, nothing ever seemed like I didn't want to be a Super Bowl quarterback or an Olympic athlete or the greatest physicist or whatever. You just want to just be alive and just calmly go about your business. If you, if you get endowed with the notion of a dream, it's fun. And to chase it. It's great that I mean, whether it works out or not, I hope it works out for you. But I would say for the majority of people, it doesn't work out in the way that seems like a pie in the sky kind of, oh, wow, I can't believe that happened sort of thing. Um, the Pursuit is probably the most fun. There's a, a song called I Miss the Hungry Years or something like that. A lot of people reference that those are the most fun. You look back and go, oh, that, that was the best gathering with your friends, you don't have enough money, you don't know if it's going to work out, and you're in a car driving through the snow hoping you can get to some gig, and all the parts of it are kind of dumb, but those are the things that I think Caitlin and I were chatting about and kind of missing and lamenting that those are kind of, for the time being, stalled if not taken away. So anyway, I thought this song by Low Moon called Expectations 
might capture that fairly well. I hope you like it. Anyway, thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. Let's get it.